moving your career further faster. That's the mission behind Cascading Leadership. Each week, we're bringing you stories of women, immigrants, members of the global majority who have risen to the ranks of senior leadership in the world of business. Get ready to gather the insights of some of the world's best business leaders and apply those to your career. If you're interested in sales and marketing effectiveness, organizational effectiveness, talent strategy, DEI, or HR tech, tune in. We're going to share with you what they don't teach you in business school. Welcome to the show. Previously on Cascading Leadership. So I want to throw out a scenario, and this is something that anybody that's in sales leadership has dealt with. At some point early in our career, we've been conditioned to say, hey, you only want to deal with the decision maker. And if you're not dealing with that person, you're just wasting your time. Why is that just complete? Well, I, my opinion, why is that thinking just complete BS when it comes to a complex sale? Because there's always someone above that decision maker that can blow it up. And they can blow it up for a variety of reasons that has nothing to do with the capability of the individual that is making, that is supposedly making the decision, right? So oftentimes, if, so for example, let's say you have a customer that's trying to decide to purchase a widget. It's a really expensive widget. It's a $400,000 widget and they are the decision maker, the technical decision maker, right? And you speak to them and you say, okay, so who, I'd like to speak with whomever, these decisions never get made by one person, who else is involved and you find out who the users are and you get the feeling that they all like the guy that's or the woman that's making the decision and the manager is going to have to sign off on it. Okay, great. Or the director is going to have to sign off on it. Can I meet him? Yep. The director says to you straight to your face, I will do what Sarah recommends. I will sign off on whatever Sarah recommends. So Sarah recommends your widget and true to word, the director signs off on Sarah's widget and then it goes to the VP of quality or the VP of R&D or the VP of finance. And that individual says, I've never seen this company before. I don't know who they are. I know this other company that you also looked at. They're about the same price. You will buy them because I know them. Someone can always blow it up. IT can blow it up. Quality can blow it up. That is using so you may have the decision-making ability at your site, but there may be another site that has 50 of another company's widget, and they may come in and go, why are you buying this widget? We already have 50 of these other ones. And so a complex sale, typically when you're, it's, I would say that 10% of the time you're dealing with one site with one group of decision-makers that has no influence on them from somewhere else. It's pretty rare. And now the conclusion of our conversation on cascading leadership. You also just described like even in a, uh, in a peer process right across the board, it could be someone else that has the potential to blow it up, right? Once it goes to another department. So when you think about, when you think about that, what would be your suggestions on establishing a effective mapping process for, for the stakeholder landscape? You should know the company that you're dealing with and you should know who your competition is, Right. And you should know what other sites might also be doing the same thing that the site is that you're working with. And if you know that another site is doing what this site is doing, it behooves you to ask the question, are they doing this process at other facilities? Yes, they are. Which vendors are they doing? Are they using there? 
It is your responsibility as a salesperson to figure that out. And so part of it is learning about the company that you're talking to. Is this a small company? Is it a big company? Are they held by another company? Who are the, if this is a really high dollar sale, who are the people that are potentially in the decision-making process? That stuff's typically public. It's typically on a website. The VP of R&D, where did they work? If you are going to have a really high dollar sale, it is your job to vet that stuff out. I'm going to interject here because there are so many great takeaways that we've just gone through in a very short amount of time. I think the bumper sticker version of what you're talking about is it's the responsibility of the rep to have a decent level understanding of the political landscape, the economic landscape, the competitive landscape, and the decision-making process in order to fully understand what they're dealing with. That's why it's complete BS to just deal with the economic buyer and only the economic buyer, because there are so many different elements that you described, Carrie, that can just blow stuff up. One of the things that we as sales leaders often hear, especially with people that are in complex sales, is that, hey, I'm struggling with moving from this person that I'm talking to and getting in front of all these other people that are involved in the decision-making process. I know that the decision isn't made at this level, but how can I get this person to either intro me or what are some ways that I can go and get in front of these other people without burning the relationship that I have in front of me? What are your thoughts on that? There's a couple ways to do it. And I can speak to how I have done it. I have speak to, I can speak to how I've seen it done in this space. My feeling is that it's probably fairly similar in other spaces. When you need to speak with people two over and three over, my, my experience has always been to say, I understand that you are going to make the technical decision on this instrument, that you are well-regarded in the organization that they believe that you are the scientist or the technical person that understands this process the best. I, I want to beg your forgiveness in advance, but I have been part of big complex sales like this for highly technical things where someone came from left field at the 11th hour and messed things up. And I want to make sure that doesn't happen to you as much as I don't want it to happen to me. And 98% of the time, we connect with that individual and they look us in the face and they go, I'm going to do what Sarah says. Great. We're done. And if they go for that, all right, great. We have the introduction to the person, whomever that is or whomever they are. And we have that conversation. And again, 98% of the time they go, we're going to sign off on what Sarah says. So they just admitted to you that they're going to sign off on what Sarah says. So if they come back at the 11th hour and say, we're going to buy somebody else. That's a problem. But you also have the opportunity to say, hey, have you used this equipment previously in your life? Do you have Do you have any questions about us and about our technology and how it differs from the stuff that you've used previously in your career? And it's a five-minute conversation. You can also use your own leadership to get in the door. You, If you know there's going to be a VP involved, then Hopefully, on your side of things, you have a VP that's willing to pick up the phone and introduce themselves. You get the name of the VP, you ask the person like, hey, our vice president of sales is really interested in meeting your vice president. VPs talk to VPs. 
Again, humility, a little self-deprecation goes a long way. And if they agree, yep, let them talk to each other. Fabulous. VPs talk to VPs. If you want to talk to the director of R&D, you have an excuse for your director to be around. My director's going to be in town. He'd really like to meet some of the leadership here and just understand how everybody does the business. So uh, appealing at a higher level is very important. You can also appeal to the committee, right? So if you're going to do a presentation and nine times out of 10, you're going to do a pretty technical presentation. You have a group. I'm going to bring in a group of people to do a presentation. Let's make sure that we have all the right people on your group. I'm going to bring in my technical folks. Let's make sure we have your technical folks here. Now, it's incredibly important to IT for them to be here. It's incredibly important for metrology to be here. This is going to be a significant change in the way you do business. Let me help you engage your stakeholders so everyone is comfortable. So always appealing to making them look good. I know that LB's got to got to chime in with a couple of follow-ups in that area. That is a great map. I think one thing that I'm curious about, and this might not be something that's as big of a practice in your space, but there's a concept of personal professional brand and leveraging that to advance the conversation. What are your beliefs or positions on leveraging that to move forward? Absolutely. So in my space, and actually in a lot of technical spaces, the more technical your space, the smaller the world, right? If you work in oil and gas, chemical engineering, those chemical engineers know each other. They either went to school together, they're in societies together, they go to meetings together. It's a little bitty world. It's the same thing in my world. We play a game, actually. It's called Six Degrees of Harold McNair. There is a guy at Virginia Tech, and he actually just passed away last year. Two years ago, his name is Harold McNair. He is one of the key thought leaders in, in analytical chemistry. And the joke is, how many degrees of Harold McNair are you? It, it's just everybody knows everybody, right? So if you are a salesperson in this space and you do not have an incredible amount of integrity such that customers trust you, you're done. You are not going to work in this space. You're not. Or you're going to work in individual contributor roles for companies that nobody else wants to work for. Integrity and personal brand is everything in this space. It is the number one piece of advice that I give to new salespeople in this space. Be careful what you say and who you say it to, and never, ever push the sale over the solution or it will bite you in the butt tomorrow and next year and the year after that. Never push the sale harder than the solution. That That's gold right there. That should be the title of this, this episode. The emotional intelligence element is such a, a vital part of a lot of the stuff that I do. And Carrie, you touched on so much of it in terms of, first, let's work our way backwards, right? I'm in the academic space these days. And I had a conversation with some of my students and I was sharing with them that you could be the smartest person in the room, but if nobody likes you, right? If nobody likes you, your success will be limited and very quickly. And I think that that does speak to some indications of, of the whole idea of the reputation, right? Because it's not just about, I think it's important, right? Like you have to be of good ethical standard, right? 
But even if you are and you annoy people, <laughs> you're not going to stay in the room that long. And I know it sounds bizarre, but like when you're going through a lot of these exercises with with folks, they don't always get that. So I appreciate you calling that out for for us. But my question is that when you think about emotional intelligence and how it plays into these uh, into this sales element, where have you where do you guide the folks on as a part of your team towards being able to execute that? How do you help your sales folks drive those best practices with emotional intelligence to help execute the sale? So I talk with my team. So we talk about buying styles a lot, right? We send people to Miller-Hyman, we send them to spin selling, right? And we talk about buying styles, right? Your quadrant of buyers, We do not quite as good a job of talking about selling styles. My observation, and this is just for years of observation, is that you are going to win or lose in the first 30 seconds of your sale. We get paid to walk in, survey the landscape, not say the wrong thing to the customer and figure out what their buying style is in 30 seconds or less. It takes really smart, emotionally intelligent people to figure that out. Those are your best salespeople. I talk about being a chameleon. And once you figure out what your customer's buying style is, figuring out what your selling style should be for that person. And I'm going to do you one better here in my space. And that is that there is a subset of the population that is really good at being highly focused and in the weeds. And in everyday vernacular, we talk about them being on the spectrum. In science, we have probably more customers on the spectrum than you would consider, that you would really think about in the general population. Neil deGrasse Tyson actually was asked a question by a young woman who was on the spectrum about being a scientist and being autistic. And he answered just beautifully. And he said, think about it. They make amazing scientists. They can focus for long periods of time on highly complex things, right? So you walk into your customer site, you got to talk to this person and they struggle to look at you. It's hard as an extroverted kind of salesperson to stop, see that, step back and go, okay, now how do I do this? And it's not easy. You have to stop being who you are at some level to meet that person where they live. I think that this is also a great call out for what you're describing as neurodiversity. And in a past episode, Jim actually touched on this with other guests, but this is a, that's an excellent call out about neurodiversity. One, recognizing someone that is, that is exhibiting this. We all have it, right? We all classify someone who is neurodiverse, but what happens is that culturally we tend to gravitate towards the center, right? And so those that may not necessarily be toward that emotional intelligence allows for you to have the ability to communicate and why you need that exposure, right? in terms of neurodiversity so that when you are in a sales situation that you have the ability to do exactly what you said is to adapt to really to connect more so than anything else. But then ultimately that connection leads to that, at least the opening the door for the potential for the sale. I think it's critical that you know your own biases as well. Yes. You must know your own biases. Uh, Honestly, my bias is people with really thick Southern accents. I don't know what it is. I don't know what it is. But when I hear like a really heavy Louisiana accent, 
I think alligators and bayous, and I know some incredibly brilliant scientists. But when I first met him, I was like, who is this guy? There is an amazing scientist. Uh, again, speaking of six degrees of Harold McNair, he, there's an amazing scientist that I know that actually came out of his laboratory. And I believe he went to Virginia Tech on a fall scholarship and he's a PhD in analytical chemistry. He's probably six foot five. He's a really big dude. And he looks like a football player. He's a brilliant scientist. He's not what you would expect when you walk in the door and start talking to a scientist. So you might actually be inclined to talk to the person next to him. So you have to be really careful about your own personal biases and figuring out who the important people are in the room and being careful not to talk to the man that's sitting next to the woman that is actually in charge. So that's critical. It's interesting that you reference checking your own biases or at least being aware of your biases and responding accordingly to that. We had a a guest on an earlier episode who's got this great personal story. A single mom for 14 years was on public assistance for a period of time, and then she's risen the ranks to become a VP of IT at a sizable organization, Molson Coors. And she's got this great story. And one of the things that came out of that conversation, one of the things that came out of the conversation is that from her position and all of the things that she's learned, one of the things that she's bothered by is that people don't approach her to engage in a conversation about how she navigated these things. And the takeaway for me in that conversation is that our biases, if we don't, if, if we don't recognize them, there's so much learning that we miss out on because we believe the world in, is some sort of way or this person is some sort of way because of some odd belief that we have. That's a great call out too, as, as a practitioner as an, as, and as a leader. You know, it ties back to what you said. You have to be in the moment, present, and be able to meet people where they are for you to have the kind of success that you want to achieve and for you to actually connect at a personal level with whoever's sitting across from you. So we've talked about mapping out the stakeholder la- landscape. We've talked about understanding the political, the economic, and, and, the, uh, and the buyer landscape. We've talked about a lot of stuff and there's so many takeaways here. How do you navigate somebody who's your adversary in a, comp- a complex deal cycle? So particularly with complex sales, these are sales where you're having multiple touch points with individuals in an organization. So you should regularly check, right? With check in with those individuals. And the questions that you're asking are critical. We've been talking about this for a couple of weeks. We're talking about bringing in the committee. You know, how, let me just take your temperature. How are people feeling in your organization about this project, about the vendors that are involved, about how things are being handled, about me, about the technology, and then just be quiet and sit back and let them be quiet, sit back and let them speak is huge. And just, oh, that's interesting. Tell me a little more about that. Who's that individual? Have they used somebody else's stuff in the past? What's been their experience? My And the other thing, so that's one approach, kind of soft approach. There's also the very direct approach. And if you, and again, knowing who your audience is, there's the direct approach that you use because the person you're dealing with is pretty direct. And then there's the direct approach that you use because at this point, there's literally nothing to lose. What are they going to do? Buy less from you? My favorite story is I had a customer, there, there was a technology I was selling at one time was the only technology for what they wanted to do was hands down 
the best, by far the most sensitive, really the only solution for what this customer wanted to do. And the customer said to me, Carrie, my boss won't let me buy it because he hates your company. And I went, do you know why? And they said, we have no idea why. He just said, we will never buy anything from them ever. I'd never met the man. I called him. I left the message. I said, Mr. Manager, Priyanka says that she will that she is not able to purchase this instrument for her challenge because you don't like me. <laughs> he called me the next day. He said, I didn't say I didn't like you. I didn't like your company. Okay, well, tell me all about that. And eventually they bought from us. So you can be direct simply because you don't have anything to lose. And if you don't ask that question, then that's sales malpractice. If you're if you don't ask a question because you're afraid to ask a question, then you deserve to lose. And you can ask direct questions with individuals who are direct, or you can take a soft approach. There's a variety of ways to do it. Yeah, I think that that's you touched on so many things, right? So you have to have the courage to be willing to do that. And I know you say you have nothing to lose, but there are still people who will have nothing to lose and still not ask that question. We've covered a, a lot of ground today. If you had two or three key takeaways that you wanted to leave with our listeners, what would those be? I would say a couple of things. First, people buy from people and emotional intelligence is critical with regard to understanding your customer, whether you like them or they like you, but focusing on the challenge that they have, whatever that challenge is, to make sure that they know that regardless of whatever is going on and whoever is involved, that you are committed to helping them solve their challenge. And that's your goal and to do it with integrity and to, again, not put the sale in front of the solution. Because particularly in the technical space, in the end, it's almost the only thing you have as a salesperson is your integrity. I find it very frustrating the perception that salespeople are somehow less than the scientists themselves. We provide value to our customers every day. We provide them information that they would not have been able to find otherwise. We help connect the dots every day to help them solve a problem. And if you focus on that, then everything else falls into place. Yeah, I appreciate that. I think that, and I love how you plug in EQ because I EQ geek. So I appreciate that. But I think that as you talk about the whole idea of the integrity piece and EQ, they're, they're all really one and the same, right? That there's a, there is a, a desire to sometimes want to achieve the goal and compromise. And especially when you talk about like with technical sales, it being a very small world. And quite frankly, Jim had mentioned this earlier, like the whole idea of six degrees of separation just in general puts us in a place where it is important for us to have a high level of integrity and exercise high EQ. Carrie, we are so appreciative to have had you on the show. I do encourage everyone that is listening to connect with her on LinkedIn. I surely, if you're in the technical space or have questions just in general about sales, I think she's definitely a go-to person that you want to reach out to and you will be able to hear both episodes of, of Harry's expertise and genius on the Cascading Leadership Podcast. You can find us on our social media platforms, Facebook, LinkedIn, TikTok, and YouTube. We're still waiting for Jim to get that dance move ready for us. So stay tuned for that. Thank you so much. See you next time, everybody. Thank you.
Thank you for listening to this episode of Cascading Leadership. We hope you enjoyed the story as much as we did. Make sure you subscribe to our show on your favorite podcast player. Follow us on YouTube, TikTok, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. Leave us a review. Tell a friend. If you're interested in sponsoring the show, reach out to me at jim at cascadingleadership.com. Tune in next time for another great episode that will help you move your career further faster.